Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Great to have you with me, as always, Carl. And this is a notable episode for us, number 40, which is a round number and means we've had 39 episodes before this. I don't really know why that's so exciting, but hey, it's a... Uh, it's, it's, further than we might have thought we'd get a year ago when we weren't recording very regularly. So I hope listeners are enjoying our more regular podcasts. I know we're enjoying these conversations happening more than once every couple months. So this is a big week in tennis or in between some big weeks. And even just today, we're recording this on on Sunday the 11th. So we're in between the first two matches in the World Tour Finals. The ATP Next Gen Finals just finished yesterday with Stefano Tsitsipas picking up that title. And just a few hours ago, the Czech Republic sealed the Fed Cup title in Prague over the the USA team. And this is a shocking stat, Carl. I I knew that the the Czechs had a really strong team and they've been dominating Fed Cup for a while. But this is their sixth Fed Cup title in the last eight years. I mean, that that just blew me away. Yeah, and it... It had reflected, to some extent, participation by its stars at a level other countries couldn't boast. Not as much this year, but they still had bigger stars than the U.S. did. Yeah, I'm not sure whether you can call Siniakova and Streetsova stars, but it was good enough. I guess Siniakova won two of the three matches they played, so it's a solid effort from her. Some people still see her as a as a rising star with very high potential. Um yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it's another point in favor of the people who like the old Davis Cup format and something like the current Fed Cup format, where today what the, the final match in the tie was between Zinniakova and Sofia Kennan, and they played for almost four hours. It was 7-5, 5-7, 7-5. There was this incredibly long game around, I think it was at 3-1 in the, the third set, I mean, this was this was truly an epic match in every sense, except for the fact that neither of the women are in the top thirty right now. Uh, yeah, it's like a at a slam that would be a little noticed court twelve, first or second round matchup. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, and it, it always comes back to the same question for me when we're evaluating these Davis Cup formats: Is this a good thing that the eyes of the world are are placed on? two players they normally wouldn't care about? Or is this a bad thing for tennis that the world is watching and we can't give them anyone in the top 30? Oh, and there's the third option, which is the world would be watching but isn't because of the matchup. And I I haven't really seen – I've seen a lot of opinion on this. I haven't seen a lot of fact, like what the world ratings are for tennis generally, let alone for a particular Davis Cup or Fed Cup final. Yeah, the only time you really see – ratings reports, or at least the only time I end up seeing them, is really just slam finals. Uh, and I'm, I mean, there's there's some influence there of having a big star in a slam final, uh, but it's it's not always predictable who qualifies as a star. I think the, the Osaka match um, got really, really good ratings, and you had Serena there, but Osaka was unknown to most people at that point. I mean, I, I don't remember the numbers well enough to speak intelligently about that, but but you're right, Carl, that we're, we're, there's a lot of speculation about what is good or bad for tennis or good or bad for ratings. And at least for us on the outside, um, 
we don't know what that data is. I, I'm hoping that the people making decisions for the ITF and WTA and so on, they actually have these numbers. So they're they're making decisions with at least some data in front of them. But even with the sure. even with the Osaka Williams example, do you remember if what you saw was U.S. ratings or world ratings? I think I've seen both. Okay, but but you're you're right. I think the, the U.S. ratings are a lot easier to come by, and certainly if. if if, if you look at who you and I are following on Twitter, for example, it's probably heavily skewed toward U.S. journalists. Uh, at least in my case, ESPN tends to publish those numbers. Uh, I don't know whether equivalent British channels or Eurosport, if there's if, if they have a tradition of publishing numbers like that at all. Um, now, Carl, you, you saw Kenan at the U.S. Open. Is that right? Yeah, I think this is now going to be the second episode where we try to make something of what I learned from one match. And <laughs> it's ironic, well, but I think the two hosts of this analytics-minded podcast are as vulnerable, if not more so, than the average tennis fan to being swayed by the match they happen to watch. Well, okay, this is not what I, what my follow-up question is going to be, but you sent us headed in a direction I've been meaning to bring up for a while. Because I, I remember a few years ago I wrote... I wrote a piece after the first time I saw Francis Tiafo, and I think a lot of us are still struggling with what to think about Tiafo's sort of unorthodox game and what his ceiling is. But I wasn't a fan the first time I saw him, and I, I said that, and I think I acknowledge there's lots of room for growth and changes and coaching and all that stuff. But the direction he was going then, I didn't think was all that promising. So maybe we can already say that was wrong. But a, a couple people levied the complaint that. I was operating on a, I was working with a small sample size, which if you're, if you're making match by match judgments, then yes, it was a very small sample size. It was one match. But if you're saying, saying things like Tiafo has a funky forehand, then I don't know. I probably saw him hit a hundred of them. I mean, do you think there are cases, Carl, where if you do see one average match, you can make some reasonable conclusions about a player? Certainly about technique. I mean, it's really unlikely that he would suddenly have a very different forehand in the next match or five matches later. The The broader conclusion of what that says about his game becomes a little more tenuous because he wouldn't have gotten to where he already was without some unexpected yield from that shot or unexpected game management around that shot. But, you know, I'd, I'd still probably rather hear your opinion based on one match of, of a player than most opinions based on 10 there's going to be some diminishing returns as well yeah and as you've pointed out on many podcasts carl that some of these questions we talk about are things that at least in theory can be answered quantitatively and in in that case let, let's say we we were able to develop a good stat of forehand quality or let's say forehand effectiveness like my backhand potency stat that i rolled out i guess almost two years ago now if, if we knew that stat was reasonably good at reflecting what it says it is, then we could take players that we have, we have that stat for, say, 100 matches for and get a sense of what the variation in that stat is. And, I mean, I don't know how much uh, a player's shot qualities vary from one match to the next, but that would be an interesting question to answer that maybe we could get some numbers on. Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many players who have some kind of an unorthodox shot or, or do something differently than convention, even if it's something that maybe used to be the orthodoxy. And it works for them because they've been hitting it that way for 15 years. And 
where let's say a very flat shot can leave us kind of stunned and often awed in a good way because it looks like there's so little margin, but they are so, they have so many reps hitting that shot that they can actually consistently clear the net by that small amount and still place it in a relatively precise part of the court. And it wouldn't work for everyone, but it works for them. And it's part of what makes tennis so much fun. Yes. And that actually gives me reason to digress even more with something I've been meaning to ask you for a few weeks now. You, you and I both, I think, really love variety in tennis. We, we, we get excited about people who approach the net more than average or hit more slices than average or even just have one-handed backhands, uh, really do anything out of the ordinary, especially since it seems like these days tennis has become increasingly homogenized and a lot of players don't do almost anything out of the ordinary. And you also hear commentators talk about this a lot. I think that the average tennis commentator is on the same page that we are, that, that they love variety uh, and both in specific cases of players who display it and also just in theory they think variety is better than no variety but when it comes to results do you think do you think there's a benefit to to having an unusual game or an unusual shot other than i mean having the ability to vary things or giving opponents a look that they don't see very often i mean do you think that that is more valuable than the potential law, the potential disadvantage of not using the standard shot that has been proven to work for maybe 80% of the other players on tour. Man, that's so tough. It's funny. You saying 80% makes me think the higher that percentage rises, the more advantage the other 20%, maybe eventually 15, maybe eventually 10% get because it's less likely that they, their opponent on any given day has seen anything like their game anytime recently. So, you know, the more it's sort of like the lefty versus righty balance. And some of that is just balanced by the natural occurrence of left handedness. But in terms of getting an additional advantage of being a lefty when facing a righty or even when facing a lefty, it depends in large part on how prevalent lefties are on tour and how often their opponents have have gotten a chance to play a lefty in terms of the effectiveness overall of of an unorthodox style because even if you're in that even if that 20 percent number of players who are different rises they're going to have different styles among them we're really talking about many different styles that are that are different than the norm it's it's such selection bias like is it worth it what they give up by not doing what's more conventional and more tried and true and it probably is for them but it could be that there are players who at 15 just weren't cutting it anymore and stopped playing competitive tennis, switched to a different sport because their funky forehand just wasn't getting it done in matches as their opponents got bigger and stronger and more used to the more conventional forehand. And we don't hear their story. So I don't really have the uh, denominator. My guess anecdotally is that it is worth it because it sounds like there are very few players at the juniors level who are doing anything unorthodox. There are very few coaches who are risking teaching something unorthodox that may make them look stupid. And yet we still see unorthodox players coming from the juniors ranks. So maybe, maybe it is worth it on balance. Yeah. That's an interesting point there that coaches are going to be very risk averse. Uh, I mean, you're never going to lose a job or have someone say that you you jeopardize their kid's future if you teach them the standard professional game. 
uh, or whatever the standard coaching script is for, for elite players at that age. Uh, but if you, if you do decide that someone has the specific set of skills to become the next Monica Nicolescu, that's going to be a really tough sell with, with probably the player and probably the parents and almost definitely the National Federation, uh, even if the results are there. So, so yeah, there are forces that are, like maybe once you get down to 20% or 10% of the pro population having some some minority tactic or shot or something, then it rapidly approaches zero. Uh, one one case where we have something more like the, the denominator is serve and volleying because some of the players who used to serve and volley more are still around. They don't serve, as vo- serve and volley as much. Uh, a lot of players who have good net skills and good serves choose not to serve and volley at all. So, so we do have the opportunity to look at how players how often they win points, both serve and volleying and not serve and volleying. Um, I guess, I, I guess the, the underlying training and coaching they received as teens might have some effect on that since what, I don't know what Taylor Dent got as a teenager is probably very different than what Daniel Medvedev got as a teenager a few years ago. So maybe it's still not a true apples to apples comparison, but that's an example where the unorthodox variety side of the argument, it, Players can still switch to that easily, at least sometimes, but it still seems to be going away just as quickly. And do the stats say they're making the right tactical decision? Um, I think when I looked at the stats, it was they were what you were what you would expect that serve and volley points were as successful as non-serve and volley points. And you've made this point before on on the podcast, which I think is a really crucial one that. That's exactly what we'd expect, because if players were winning 60% of non-servant volley points and 70% of servant volley points, they'd serve and volley more. Uh, the equilibrium going, would be to get to the point, to get to the breakdown where they win the same percentage either way. I'm just, it, exactly. It's just not the case that for every athlete in every sport, they're going to find their equilibrium. Yeah, absolutely not. And, and serve and volley is a, a tricky one, because it, when you originally made that point, it was something to do with, uh, I think it was rushing the net within a point. Um, so you would, you have these variety of situations where an approach shot is an option and some of them are very obvious. Some of them are very risky. Um, but with serve and volley, you're starting from the same point or the same position in every point. So if, if you, if you consistently win 70% of serve and volley points and 60% of non-serve and volley, you would always serve and volley, um, unless there's some benefit to the surprise of doing one or the other. And, and maybe there is. Um, but the reason that I did that analysis was uh, some Amy, Amy Lundy, I think her name was, wrote something for 538 during the U.S. Open that used some data that the U.S. Open provided her about women serve and volleying. And that data pointed very strongly towards serve and volley being the being underused that players were a lot more successful serving volleying than otherwise so they weren't anywhere near that equilibrium um i did a follow-up with match charting project data which is it's over four thousand matches now so a, a, a much bigger sample size broader range of players all sorts of things and i found that it was pretty close to equilibrium and i think part of the problem i i've looked at a few of those u.s open matches that that the U.S. Open's data were based on, and they were counting some kind of questionable things as serve and volley. So, for instance, in in Serena's semifinal and final, she had a few points where she would hit a big serve, 
get a weak reply and do a late net rush and swat away a swinging volley or something. And those were getting counted as servant volleys. So I think in the in the semifinal there were there were three Serena servant volleys according to the U.S. Open, but only one according to me. And all of those additional servant volley points that the U.S. Open were counting were almost by definition points that the server's winning because they they come because of such weak replies. So I, I think the I think the data that was in that five thirty thirty eight article was was flawed for that reason. I think it's closer to equilibrium than than that. Right. The key um, is what you were planning to do when you served, not what you decided to do after seeing what came back. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think if, it, yeah, and for, for women's tennis, we're rapidly approaching the point where no one ever serves in volleys. I mean, we'll probably never get to zero because players will always throw it in now and then just either for fun or for the sake of variety. But, uh, but it's a really, really small number. Um, I'm not sure if I remember how we got Sophia here or Kenan. why we got here. Sophia Kennan, <laughs> exactly. And I remember you, you have mentioned that she she showed you a fair amount of variety uh, in the one match you saw that we're drawing way too heavily on. I should correct uh, myself. I saw her twice. I saw her beat Sakari in the second round, and I saw her lose to Pliskova, who she could have faced in the Fed Cup final in the third round. Um, and yeah, I I thought she had a good amount of variety, a lot of game. Uh, pretty impressed could see her breaking into the top 30 next year and maybe the top maybe even someday the top 10 well i'll be interested to watch that final from today i i'll probably check it out in the next day or two i'm guessing that in that three hour and 45 minute match or whatever it ended up being that there is a lot of variety to watch there maybe not servant volleying but uh, a really wide range of of uh, tactics on display, especially since both players had the um, the luxury of in-match coaching that you get in Fed Cup, uh, even more than on the standard WTA Tour. And that would be a, a great segue to the next-gen finals, which also had in-match coaching, which is even more unusual on the men's side. But I want to save that for later. We have a lot of topics related to the next-gen finals, but I think it's more important to start our men's discussion with the world tour finals in London, which are underway today. So just to let you know, since you're probably not going listeners aren't going to listen to this the moment it's released, uh, as we're having this discussion, it's in the middle of the two sessions on Sunday. So, well, Hey now, Jeff, Hey now, there's a doubles match happening. Let's not dismiss it. Oh, it is happening. So, so we're not in the middle. I, I wasn't dismissing. I just, didn't know or wasn't aware of what time it is. One of the confusing parts about recording this podcast is that we usually discuss our, our uh, appointment time in Eastern time, but I'm six hours ahead of that, so I don't know what time it is right now. <laughs> That's my excuse. Um, so yes, there's a doubles match going on right now. Carl, who's playing? Uh, I know Cabal Farah was up last I checked, and they were playing uh, Peya Metkic, I think. Okay. So Sock, Brian, or tomorrow? Yep. Um, all right. So what I was trying to say was we know Anderson beat Dominic Team, so there's a little bit known in the Hewitt group. And by the time you listen to this, probably Federer and Nishikori will have played the second match in that group. But we don't know what's happening there. Uh, first question, Carl. I, I, I have a, a quantified answer to this, and 
you have it in front of you. So, <laughs> but I, I want I want to know your gut feelings. I, I I have one as well that I'll share after after you. The the two groups worked out this way. We have the top seeds of Djokovic and Federer, and because Rafael Nadal is out with injury, and also Juan Martín del Potro is out with injury, they're the clear two top dogs in this tournament. Uh, so, uh, looking at the draw, naturally you look at at how how the how the two groups of four ended up split between the two top seeds. So Federer ended up with the with Anderson, Nishikori, and team in his group. Djokovic ended up with Isner, Chilich, and Zverev in his group, which makes Djokovic look very short, as I believe he's already observed. <laughs> um, so, Carl, what what's your gut there on on how the draw shook out? Is this do you think this is in favor of of one of the two players? <sighs> I think it's maybe slight favor of Federer because team is probably the least scary opponent among the other the other seven. Like, you know, this is these are eight of the top ten players in the world, so it's a really, really strong field. But Dominique Team on indoor hardcore does not Dominique Team on Clay. As you've written before, he's got the biggest gap between Clay and other surfaces in terms of his ELO rating. So a good a good person to see in your group. Otherwise, I mean Nishikori is probably weaker um than alternatives just because of the surface. And yeah, you could you could look at the the lineup and say Zverev and Chilich are the next two strongest and they're in Djokovic's group. So overall, I think Federer got the better draw, not by a lot. Yeah, that was my gut feeling too. And even without diving that far into it, just the fact that to me, Zverev is clearly the third best player in the field. And Zverev landed in Djokovic's group. So that I guess that's not a, a huge factor because two players come out of each group. Um, so, so for Djokovic, there's... It wouldn't matter that much to come out as the top seed or the second seed if you're looking at their chances of winning the whole tournament. I mean, if, if you want to reach the final, then I guess you want to look at who your probable opponent is in, this, in the semifinal. But in the end, all that washes out. You've got to beat the best players. Um, as it turned out, I, I've already posted these on Twitter, and, and we'll see whether I'm able to uh, keep updating them throughout the tournament. But going into the, the, the first match today... Djokovic had exactly a 40% chance of winning the whole thing, and Federer had a 29.4% chance of winning the whole thing. It's basically 30%. And if you swap their two groups, uh, just move Djokovic into the group with Anderson, Nishikori, and team, and vice versa, then their odds were virtually unchanged. Federer remained 29.5. Djokovic, I think, went up to 40.2 or something, but I mean, not small enough to, or not large enough even to, to matter or be worth talking about. Uh, after the first match result coming in, Anderson defeating team uh, doesn't have a lot of effect on on the end results. So Djokovic is still a little bit over forty percent. Federer is a little bit under thirty. It did have a big effect on Anderson. He was seventh in terms of the probability of winning the tournament uh, going in, and now he's third uh, at seven point three percent, which seems awfully optimistic for Kevin. But uh, that's where we stand now. So, Carl, what do you think about the the forty and thirty? So, it, my numbers say there's basically a seventy percent chance, uh, better than two and three, that Djokovic or Federer is the winner. Do you, does that feel right to you? 
70 feels right, I would give Djokovic more and Federer less. Like, I think Elo still hasn't caught up to the reality of... Federer, Elo has a long memory, which is good. Uh, for this prediction, I mean, I guess this is saying we can empirically check whether it should, for forecast, be weighting more recent events more heavily. Uh, my entirely non-analytical, stupid gut says that Djokovic has Djokovic's gap in probability of winning the title over Federer is more than 10 percentage points. Is that because you think that Djokovic is better in general and is more likely to beat everybody else and get there, or because you think in the head-to-head Djokovic has a bigger edge? Almost entirely the first. I mean, the head-to-head would only come into play if they met each other in the knockout stages. Looking at your odds, it looks like there's about a 30% chance they meet in the final, and I guess there's some additional chance that they meet in the semifinal. Um, but I wouldn't put... I w- I'm not going to weight the very few matches they've played all that heavily against each other, but they've played a whole lot of matches not against each other since... I don't know, June, and it's pretty clear that Djokovic has been far better. In Against the Tour in general? Against the Tour in general. And yeah, I, I was ass- say that. assume against the other six guys in the tournament, but I don't remember off the top. Yeah, and I think for Federer, the, the Anderson match is going to end up being really important. That, that, that's the only one that should be dangerous. I guess Nishikori can always have a great day and, and threaten him, but... Anderson's the guy who could win despite not being as good. Uh, I mean, we've seen it happen in a high-profile match in London already once this year, so there's no reason it couldn't happen again. Um, and I, I said I, I look at Zverev as the clear number three player uh, in the field going into the tournament. My my predict my probabilities were not that clear. I mean, there's a very was before the Anderson team result. There was a very small gap between Zverev, Chilich, and Nishikori. And now there's still not that big of a gap between Anderson and those three. Uh, I think when I asked you this question a couple weeks ago, you voted for Zverev as the the potential surprise winner. Do you still think that he's the third favorite? Yeah, I mean, I think it's within this context of two guys in the tournament have a greater than two-thirds chance of winning between them. So third favorite means the, among the scraps that the other six are, are fighting for, one has slightly more. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like Zverev, although I think your forecast rightly reflects that, hey, one guy is now 1-0, and that matters a lot, so now he's the third favorite, Anderson. Um, but going into the tournament, Zverev seemed right. Certainly Zverev beats Chilich tomorrow, that seems right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And yeah, just to to reiterate, we're talking about really small differences. So right now I've got Anderson at 7.3% to win the whole thing, Zverev at 6.4%, Chilich at 5.9%, Nishikori at 5.7%. I mean, one number is bigger than the others, but we're not talking about a huge gap. And there's not that much left after you take Djokovic and and Federer out out of the question. So... Let's talk about the the event in general. I'm forgetting at the moment, but Carl, am I right that next year is the last year in London on the current contract? 
I'm not sure myself. That sounds right. Uh, okay. And do you I, know when the first year was? I don't remember, but it was a, it's a five-year deal, and I think they've renewed it once. That sounds right. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's next year. The, reporters have been asking these guys what they think about it, and uh, I, I think Federer comes down on the side of it's great in London, let's keep it in London, and, and Djokovic says something politically uh, friendly about London, but then says he likes the idea of the event moving around. What do you think, Carl? I mean, we've seen it in London for a long time. It's been successful there. You, you've had the opportunity to, to attend a couple times. Do you think it, it, it functions well as a as a permanent uh, feature in London, or would it be better if it moved around? I like the idea of moving it around. I mean, it's the highest profile event that the tour commands, and they can do a lot with it. Like it, it. If your goal is to make the players happiest, they're almost all European. It's kind of nice being in Europe. Um, London really does put on a good show, and it's it's nice touch that they take the ferry out there sometimes, and they they have a very glamorous gala before the event, and and it's and London is such a a center for tennis. So there, there's a lot of attractive things about it, but it just seems like London already has a slam. Europe already has so much of the tour. There are growing fan bases around the world. Why not spread it out and uh, and use it the way the ATP used to use it, the way the WTA uses it? Now, again, this is Jeff and me with no inside information speculating Maybe they get such a good deal from London or clearly get so much more money uh, in in other ways by being in London that it's that there's just been no offer that can can compete. But I hope at least they're constantly looking at alternatives and, and considering them. Asia doesn't have a slam. I guess the Australian Open is the slam of the of the Asia Pacific region, but it's not quite Asia. Um you could imagine going to South America for a few years and bringing tennis, bring, bringing like a top tennis event to Argentina, or another place that's been very supportive in Davis Cup. There are a lot of places that don't have any of the biggest events in the sport that would probably embrace it, and maybe that would boost interest. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, you're certainly right that Europe has a huge percentage of high-profile tennis events, which is nice for those of us who live in Europe. Not so nice if you live somewhere else, especially in the U.S., which has steadily hemorrhaged a lot of of tennis events in the last decade or two. Uh, One thing I wonder as well when we're looking at at what should happen with the Tour Finals, I I think I'm right in saying both the ATP and WTA... award their to the tour finals location in five-year chunks right so london's been it's had two of those five-year deals but then the wta had singapore for five years and they just uh well this year almost a year ago now they made a deal with shenzhen to have the their tour finals i believe also for five years starting next year uh that's a really big contract and it, it represents a huge commitment even just from the side of the sport to say we're going to have our our year-ending celebration in Singapore or Shenzhen or London, um, that that seems like it would be a really hard sell to move to Buenos Aires, uh, which only has a 250, uh, no other, not a whole lot of other 
big tennis events in the entire continent. Do you think it would make more sense in this this concept of of, of spreading the wealth, um, creating opportunities in other places in the world, if it was if it wasn't in a different location every year, or every two years, or something like that? Yeah, uh, that would allow for bigger risks and for less – bigger risks in location and less risk if a location doesn't work out because you can get out of it pretty quickly. Uh, you could even imagine some kind of like competition or incentive-based system. I don't know exactly what it would be, but something that reflects like how successful the local tournament or the local tennis – community is. I mean, imagine if um, it's a different federation, so it never happened. But imagine if the Davis Cup winner got to host the World Tour finals the next year, um, since they can't host Davis Cup finals the same year. Uh, anyway, that's that's cockamamie. But something that would would add some excitement to the location. And maybe maybe the site could even have a say in the surface as well. Yeah, that brings me to my next question, which you very cleverly foresaw because I wrote it down and shared the document with you. I can read. Um, <laughs> so it, it's been on hard court for, I don't know, forever. I'm not sure how far back the tour finals goes or if, if we are talking about other events that are sort of the same concept. Those haven't always been on hard court, but for... As far back as any active player has been playing, the tour finals have always been on hard courts and they've mostly been indoor. Maybe they've all been indoor. I'm not sure. Uh, and that's something that we only see for a couple months out of the year on tour. A lot of great players like, of course, Rafael Nadal, uh, they haven't built their resume of being one of the greatest players on, of all time based on their indoor hardcore prowess. Uh, so it doesn't seem quite right to say that the the year-end finals, which at least implies some sense of a year-end championship, uh, should be only on one surface. So, yeah, I mean, do, do you think it's basically a question of do we want continuity or or do we want surface fairness? So, I mean, Carl, would, would you be more interested in this event if it was on at least occasionally on different surfaces. I don't know whether it'd be every year or every five years or whatever, but if there were the potential for it to be clay or grass or something? Well, there's a lot of variables to consider. Like, if you put in the Southern Hemisphere in November, maybe it's it's still not summer, uh, but maybe it's a little easier to be outdoors or have a different surface. There's so many oddities about this tournament that contribute to the... this this perplexing question of, of surface like you mentioned it's called finals and it is the last event of the tour season although you still have the davis cup final and it's it's in no other way it's it doesn't determine anything like it's not like the winner is number one or the winner has gotten a grand slam or the winner is by consensus the best player of the year the winner last year was Dimitrov over Gofan, and I don't think that changed anyone's perception of how 2018 went, about how 2017 went. So it's they're trying for something that then suggests it should be um, it should be fair in some way if it's going to be a year-end championship. I think the reason it should be fair is not that it's called finals or that's the year-end championship. It's that it is already kind of unfair that only eight players get to 
play for this bonanza of ranking points and prize money. And among them, it can get pretty unfair if like the surface way favors one over the other, because then that guy gets to use those ranking points for seedings the next year. Um, so if I were Rafa, I would be pretty annoyed that for all these years of competing against Djokovic and Federer, I get to watch them rack up more points than me at this event, even if I'm coming in as the better overall player because of the surface it's played on. On the other hand, it probably should be on the surface if it is where it is in the calendar and where it is, which is following a European indoor hardcourt season. So I think if it didn't have so much of an identity problem, it would be easier to answer the question. Yeah, the, the, that's a lot of good points. And Jeff McFarland, who I think he just launched his new website, which is hiddengameoftennis.com, but he's been at First Ball In, which is fbitennis.tumblr.com. Uh, he wrote something a month or two ago suggesting that the year-end finals be publicized as something bigger, just as truly a championship. And it comes down to some of the same discussions we've had in the past about the rankings versus against the race. And midway through the season, the rankings make a lot more sense because they reflect the full year of data. But the race can, in, in many ways, be more interesting. I mean, just because someone is number one in the race doesn't mean we're appointing them the greatest of all time. Just like if a baseball team is leading the standings on June 1st, they're not necessarily the best team of the year. But even to extend the baseball analogy, like we're okay with the fact that a team might win the World Series and not be the best team that year, according to you know, wins above replacement or linear weights or something, or even just regular season wins. And in tennis, we don't make that leap. Like we we very we we very carefully segregate all these measures of the best from the year-end tournament that only the best players are invited to. And I'm not sure if I'm totally on board with this perspective, but I really appreciated the argument he made that why don't we just say the player who wins the the year-end finals is the champion of the world that year? Because we have four slams and baseball doesn't. That's part of the reason, yeah. Although slams do give some degree of preference into the tour finals. It normally doesn't uh, it doesn't make too much of a difference because the they're so highly correlated with point totals, uh, ranking point totals. But, uh, but the system pretty much ensures that if you win a slam, you're getting into the tour finals. But I mean, yeah, the, the, the slams are so high profile, and there's not a, a, a parallel in other sports to that. But I think it, you identified it as as an as an identity crisis of what this event is, and if we even acknowledging the the limitations, if, if we just if the tours would just say this is our year-end championship, like the the winner of this is the winner this year in a in a broader sense, then that would uh, that would address that identity crisis, and it might lead us to better answers for some of these other questions. Like if we really were giving it that much more weight, then maybe it would be more important to have it on clay sometimes, or move it around the world, or I don't know. It, it might have made it clearer that we needed to have a, a free week between Paris and London, which we do now, but for many years we didn't. Uh, it, it might make more sense if, if we could answer the question of what it is in the first place. Jeff, how about the venue has clay, grass, and hard, and in each match, flip a coin, Player gets one player gets to decide which surface they play. You would watch that? that yeah. That would be interesting. 
maybe this is more a next gen idea than a tour finals idea. Well, that's a excellent segue right there, since we we do want to talk about the next gen. And I was pretty skeptical last year, and I I was not well connected to the the internet and the rest of the world and streaming video last year. So I didn't get to watch any of it last year. And I'm paying more attention this year. I watched the final between Sitspas and Dimonor, which was a pretty entertaining match from yesterday. And I'm not on board with all these rule changes. I, I, I probably lean to the stodgy side when it comes to tennis traditionalism. But I do like the idea that that the ATP has sort of decided that next-gen finals is like carnival. Like, they're suspending all the rules. They're going to mess around with what they can do. But at the same time, it it sort of makes the rest of, of the, the, the calendar safer from meddling and tweaking. If we just say, we're going to use this as our sandbox and see how it works this one week of the year. And I'm kind of surprised that no one had ever done that within the tours before. I mean, the world team tennis has always kind of served as that sandbox, but it's not affiliated with the tours. So I'm not sure if it's, it serves the same kind of function, but Carl, I think we talked about this a little last year, if I remember right, but um, with another year in the books, I mean, you're generally more in favor of experimentation and, and different rule formats and that kind of stuff than I am. Um, I mean, what do you think about the, the format as a whole so far? In general, I like it, although it seems like they didn't change much this year from last year, like the sandbox stayed untouched in between. Is, is that right? They, t- they tweaked a few things. The big one in the press has been the towel rack. So ball boys or ball kids don't, uh, don't handle towels anymore. And the other one, I, I think they changed the, uh, the Hawkeye-based video review. So it's still automatic line calling. And in addition to that, then they, they, they automatically show close calls on the big screen. Uh, like the same way that Hawkeye shows them. But they show it almost instantaneously. So you have an additional level of the chair umpire and the players being able to confirm what they saw. But apart from that, yeah, you're right. It's basically the same sandbox as it was last year. Yeah, I I like some of it. I like all of it from the philosophy of let's try some stuff out. Uh, there's specifically the scoring system, which, which maybe we'll get to, which I, I like as something to try, but don't think is the the answer to tennis's problems that it's been looking for yeah let's talk about that so you would probably know better than i would carl that this is basically fast four right the way they play is it it, i don't know whether there are varieties of fast four is is this like true canonical fast four tennis they're playing it's a great point there might be something slightly different with how they do the tie breaks like i think they're playing full tie breaks yeah. And I don't think that's how fast four is supposed to work, but otherwise it's fast four. Okay. So if any listeners aren't familiar with this format, I totally understand and sympathize with you. So let me give it a, give you a quick rundown. The way they're playing at the next gen finals is best of five sets, but each set is only to four. And not only is it just to four, but if they get to three, three, that's where they play the tie break. So you've got to get to four, but at 3-3 three, three you play a tie break. The tie break is a standard first to seven tie break. And then the individual games are no ad. And unlike doubles, the deciding point is server's choice to go to the deuce side or the ad side. Uh, 
And then another minor thing is there are no let serves. If it clips the let cord, it's still in play, like a regular shot. Uh, I think that pretty much summarizes it. And, yeah, we've seen it tested a little bit. I think there were some Fast 4 exhibitions in Australia, uh, around the Australian Open a couple of years ago. Uh, I think some maybe some juniors or amateur leagues are using it. And th- the argument in favor is is that it creates more excitement. And I, one of, that's one of the arguments. Another argument is that it, it, it gives people fresh starts more often. So if you, if you lose the first set in a standard ATP or WTA match, then you're down quite a bit. But if you lose the first fast four set, you know, you're 20 minutes in, you've got a long time to come back. Uh, you know, Carl, you, you already said something that suggested you weren't really sold on fast four as a solution for the tours themselves. What, what makes you skeptical about it? Yeah, I just don't think that it's it's what you give up makes it worth it. That it doesn't speed things up that much. Certainly, if you're using it to go best of five, then raises the question: Why not just do best of three sets to six, and you'll you'll be similar similarly situated. And there's something about you're you're cutting off the end of sets and the end of games where things get exciting, you're kind of short circuiting those and you're, you're leaving the parts of the set that are kind of boring. Um, like if it's, if it's um, three, three in a set, those next, those subsequent games, whether they're three more or six more are going to be pretty exciting because we're closer to the end of the set. And, the set is very close. And when you get to deuce in a game, any subsequent points are going to be exciting because they're going to be deuce or a game point for someone. So it, it just seems a little perverse to, to cut those short. I want to come back to the, the no ad case in a, in a second, but at the game level, you said they're essentially cutting off the end of sets. Don't you think that they're basically cutting off the beginning of sets? Like if you think three, three is exciting, why is 1-1 one, one not equally exciting in this format? I see what you're saying. It's as if they're starting at 3-3 three, three or 2-2. Two, two. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe it just doesn't feel that way because of the the numbers. I mean, on it, when men play this format, especially on fast courts, as soon as there's a break, it feels a little dull because there's very little time to come back. Like, it seems like a very rare event. Maybe it's that's not something worth keeping because it's also rare in a set to six as well. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, now that I've sat through an entire fast four match and thought about it a little bit more, I'm curious about some of these things and whether we can quantify them because one of the first pieces I wrote for the economist, I think it was maybe two years ago now, um, was about basically about the excitement level in the doubles format. So in, in ATP doubles, they also play no ad, but they play standard sets to six. But then the, the final set, if necessary, is determined by a match tiebreak, so a tiebreak to 10 points. So it's it, I think more of the consideration in doubles is to make sure the matches don't go too long. They aren't thinking about optimizing for excitement exactly. But you could make some of the same arguments uh, that people make for fast four, that the the games can't go on for that long. You get that. You get more excitement in those situations. Um, you get some very high leverage points at the end. But when I ran the numbers and looked at like, 
hypothetical matches of, of I mean, basically I took an entire tournament's worth of matches as they'd been played at, at a Masters tournament and took those same players and simulated matches in the doubles format. So you get deciding points, you get the match tie breaks, and then I looked at the, the leverage or excitement of every point based on the potential swings and win probability. And the, the aggregate stats for excitement in the doubles format were were worse than in the singles format. So yes, deciding point is very exciting. Um, yes, 8-8 eight, eight in a match tiebreak is very exciting. But you only get... You, you get a smaller number of those compared to the traditional singles format. And as, as you were leading toward, Carl, um, in the traditional scoring system, having to win by two means games can go on for a long time. And maybe sometimes it gets boring... But at least in theory, a, a, a game with five deuces is very exciting. I mean, the, the, the leverage in terms of the effect on the entire match is very high. And you can get 10 points in a row with very high leverage, a lot of tension, a lot of excitement. And in Fast 4 or the doubles format, you get maybe two, and then it's over. Uh, and that that's what you're giving up when you adopt a faster format and get some other form of excitement. And I wonder if, again, building on what, what you were saying about getting about losing some of the more interesting parts of sets is even if you do gain more exciting points in like from, from the no ad format, then maybe there's a smaller range of excitement and maybe that's what makes tennis the sport we no one love is I mean 15 all at love one in the second set is it's pretty boring but maybe the fact that we're sitting through something that's not that thrilling in the moment makes it even more thrilling when we get to five six in a third set tiebreak spoken like a former uh, baseball fan yeah I, I realize that sounded very baseball fan coming out of my mouth but I mean the whole world watches football and soccer and that's not very exciting so <laughs> Wow, way to alienate all yes. of our seven listeners. Um, send send your send your responses to at Carl Bialik on Twitter, everyone. Go ahead. I don't I don't check Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I I just want to put in a plug for a different format. I host a different tennis podcast called Thirty Love because everyone should have at least two. And my latest guest was Mark Milne, who's proselytizing the virtues of what he calls thirty thirty tennis. And he has very specific cricket-derived reasons for calling it that. He's Scottish. And his idea is to start games at deuce. I'm sorry I said it that way, Mark. I know that you say start them at 30-all, but they start at deuce effectively. And then see what happens from there. And otherwise, do, do exactly what the standard rules of scoring of tennis say you should do. So... It sets to six, at six all, play a tie break, and so on. And I just tried it today for the first time. I was immediately intrigued when I heard about the idea. And it really does make every point count. I think every point from deuce on is exciting. I mean, sometimes the quality of the point isn't, certainly at the level I play. And there was something crudely satisfying about the sets ending in scores that sounded familiar and I th- it felt like we got in more tennis, and I think some of that is psychological because often love all and, frankly, 30 love points are forgettable. So anyway, 
I don't expect to see that at a tour event anytime soon, but for sandbox tournaments like the Next Gen Finals or Exhibitions, it's, I think, a worthy alternative to consider. So if you had to pick between 30-30 and Fast 4, which one would you go with? Well, this is based on just one one time doing it, but I would go with 30-30. I've done Fast 4 a lot for similar motivations, just mix things up, get through sets faster, more resets. And I, I do like it, although I don't think Noad really added, no pun intended, much to the experience. But I, I, I just really liked the the feeling of immediately jumping into a game at 30-all. Uh, it, it felt somewhat more nerve-wracking, but mostly more exciting. Yeah, I can, I can see the momentum shifting really rapidly um, and heavily in each direction. If we believe in momentum, I don't know if we do. Um, so, and you've played. You said you've played fast four. Yeah, a lot more than thirty thirty. Okay. Um, how do you think that would work? I mean, do, do, how do you think professional tennis would look playing thirty thirty? Would it be? I mean, it seems like the the level of tension or excitement would be quite high all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that means that it's never high based on the baseball fan perspective. But no, I think that it would immediately put players under pressure from the very beginning of a set. And it would also mean more breaks. So there would be more sense of, okay, I did just lose my serve by losing two points right away, but I can break back at some point because I just have to do the same. And I think, you know, I think a lot of fans watching tennis have that experience of like not really paying attention early in games and then kind of getting more focused as the game goes. So it just, it just cuts, it skips ahead. It cuts out those, those moments of lagging interest. Yeah. And I, I guess that's another thing. It would be nice to have some data on, on TV ratings and viewership and all that to, to know what, what people really watch. But it, it's interesting that one of the main concerns with tennis is, is keeping people more engaged, having a more uh, exciting format. And, but every once in a while, the ideal to compare tennis to is golf. And golf doesn't have that. Golf is the opposite of that. So golf is if like sets were played to 20 and, you know, Isner and Anderson just aced each other. For, well, that's not exactly right, but I mean, if it if it if it was more like sitting at a baseball game in the summer. Um, well, I don't totally understand don't what it means to attend golf in person and and how you experience that. And I basically haven't done it. But on TV, I think golf has the advantage of well, this is what's interesting right now, so we're going to show it to you. And even though this guy's whole round is generally not interesting, you're going to see the one hole where it really matters or where he does something unusual and and stay engaged that way. I mean, it would be like if the if slam coverage were more uh, roaming and it was more like red zone coverage of NFL Sunday and you jumped from court to court to see what was most exciting. Yeah, and I guess if everyone was competing with each other, the way that they are in a golf round, then I could see that being fairly compelling and being a good way of, of showing more players more than just their absolute peak highlight moments. 
Um, I'm not sure if it would work for tennis because in, in golf, at least in theory, everyone's chasing the same mark for that day. And in, in tennis, they're all just playing each other. So you can't really say that someone is, you know, eight points behind Nadal. But, but yeah, that it, it sounds like that could conceivably be interesting. Um, early early round coverage in the slams showing just a couple points or a game here and there, and even being willing to go back and show replays in places. I mean, that, that's something that Eurosport and ESPN do to a limited extent, but there's still very much a, a, a single match they're showing. So I wonder if people would watch that. Um, I had a couple more topics on our agenda for today, but we are rapidly approaching the hour mark and it's getting late either in New York or Europe. I'm not sure which one, but I think we'll wrap it up here and call that good for the next gen finals and the tour final and fed cup. So Carl, as usual, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. And listeners, thank you everyone for tuning in. I think, think we're planning on being back this time next week or maybe next Monday at the conclusion of the World Tour Finals. So lots of great tennis to watch and follow in between now and then. Thank you all for listening in and we'll check back with you then.